please join me in prayer as we ask for God's help for us all. Father in heaven, we pray that you might help us to see more of who you, our God, is, more of the glory of Jesus. Please, by your spirit, enable me to speak with clarity and faithfulness in a way that is helpful for people. Lord, we pray you'd open our ears, our hearts, our minds by your spirit. You might change us to respond and live in a way that pleases our Saviour. Father, we ask these things in his name. Amen. I think something that amazes us all is a stunning sunset. To see the deep and bright yellows and oranges, pinks and purples, it's just awe-inspiring, isn't it? Doesn't a, a beautiful sunset blow you away? Blow you away with God's creative power, his majesty, his glory. Amazing sunsets reveal God's glory. They can't save us. I can't help us know God personally. What we really need is an encounter with the glory of Jesus. And today in this passage we see his glory and that should move us. I did forget to say if you want to hear a transcript or an outline, you'll find one at the door or on the website. Last week in Matthew 16, I don't know if you heard it or were here, we saw Jesus, that he is the king who denied himself. And Peter was right when he said, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And once the disciples understood that, that Jesus was the promised king and Messiah, the king and saviour, once they understood that, he told them why he came and, and how he would save them. That he needed to suffer and die and rise. And then in the last verse of chapter 16, Jesus promised that some of them would not die before they see Jesus come in his kingdom. And so some would get a snapshot of his glorious kingdom very soon. And in the very next verse, we're told it's six days later. Specific mentions of time in Matthew's gospel are not common. But here it's linking sacrifice and suffering with, with glory. Jesus has just promised that, that his death is coming. And if there's any doubt to Peter and the disciples that this is God's plan, he's now, in our passage, given assurance. We're told after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, his brother John, his three closest disciples, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. Which mountain it was, we're, we're not sure. Back in chapter 16 and verse 13, we read that Jesus was near Caesarea Philippi. And it's now, now six days later, they're up a mountain. So it was probably Mount Hermon circled there in the, in the red circle at the top of the map. And there's a picture of Mount Hermon there also. So it's likely there, we're not sure. But on this high mountain, the disciples see Jesus' glory. And glory seen is my first point. There, on the mountain, verse 2, he was transfigured in front of them. Transfigured is an obscure word, but because we don't really understand what happened to Jesus, obscurity fits the situation. original word in Greek is metamorpho, from which we get metamorphosis. It's a word that describes being transformed or changed in appearance. 
My wife, Kirsty, teaches science at a primary school, and something her kids are looking at this term is the life cycle of monarch butterflies. So the children get to see caterpillars grow big, then form a hard chrysalis before emerging as beautiful monarch butterflies. And I think the change is phenomenal. We could say that the caterpillars are transformed and transfigured. And Jesus' appearance also changes drastically. Look at verse 2. We're told his face shines like the sun. His clothes are white as light. Jesus doesn't hear, he doesn't just reflect brightness and glory like the moon does. No, Jesus radiated glory from within. Here, Jesus is revealing his true nature and character. Normally, on earth, his divine nature was veiled and hidden. People couldn't see who Jesus really was, God the Son in human flesh, God in human flesh. Not everyone knew that he he was God the Son who laid aside his glory to come to earth, but the one who is fully human, he reveals that he's also fully God. And Peter, James and John, they get a, a taste of it here. As we sing in the, in the carol, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, we sing, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Moses and Elijah were told to appear with Jesus. And we're being told here that Jesus is greater than Moses and Elijah. Jesus is greater than the law and the prophets. There's parallels with Moses, as we'll see, but Jesus is greater than Moses. In the passage just read for us, in Exodus 24, remember that glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. Who knows what it looks like, but I find pictures helpful. And a cloud covered this mountain for six days. And we're told in Exodus 24 that Moses went up on the seventh day. Isn't it interesting that now after six days, Jesus went up a mountain? The Israelites in Exodus 24 saw the Lord's glory and Moses entered the glory cloud. Here, Jesus' disciples are witnessing the shining light of his glory. In Exodus 34, after being in God's presence, we're told that Moses' face was radiant. We might say it was with reflected glory. And yet Paul in 2 Corinthians 3, he says that Moses' glory faded. Jesus, though, is different. In the Old Testament, in Daniel chapter 7, describes God, the Ancient of Days, having clothing white as snow, hair white like wool, and a throne of flaming fire. And then one like a son of man comes on the clouds of heaven and approaches the ancient of days. And we're told this, that he was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that those people of every people and nation and language should serve him or worship him in his dominions and everlasting dominion. And then if you fast forward or we fast forward to the 
the last book of the Bible, in Revelation chapter 1, here we learn that what we're seeing here of Jesus' temporary transformation in Matthew 17, it's giving the disciples a taste of Jesus' future glory. And so the Apostle John, he sees in Revelation chapter 1 this vision, someone like the Son of Man, the hair of his head was white like wool and white as snow and and his eyes like a fiery flame and his face was shining like the sun at its full strength. I mean, that's something we can't look at with our own eyes, is it? John says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. He laid his right hand on me and said, don't be afraid. They're familiar words, aren't they? And he said, I'm the first and the last and the living one. I was dead, but look, I'm alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Jesus is the glorious, shining, saving, awesome son of man from Daniel chapter 7, Revelation chapter 1. He is the glorious, living God, King And that's why Peter, in one of his letters in 2 Peter chapter 1, he says this, speaking of our events. We didn't share an invented story, Peter says, when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Instead, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice when it came from heaven while we were with him on the holy mountain. So Peter really saw Christ's majestic glory and he really heard God's voice. It was similar similar to Jesus' baptism. In chapter 17, verse 4, God said, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased, listen to him. Jesus is God the Father's loved son. So Jesus, he stands apart, above Moses and Elijah and his disciples and and from you and I. Yes, by faith we become adopted sons and daughters of God. But Jesus is the son of God in his nature in his being. And and when you think about Jesus, do you ever think about him like that? God. God. Wouldn't it be good for us to sit back and reflect on the glory of Jesus? God asks the disciples to listen to his son. God calls for a response of listening. God was saying, in effect, if my son tells you he must go to Jerusalem and suffer and die, believe him. If he tells you he will be raised from the dead on the third day, believe him. If he tells you to take up your own cross and follow him, that is what you are to do. If he says he will come again in glory, then believe him, live accordingly. And in Matthew 17, in our passage, God is speaking to you and I and he calls us to listen to Jesus too. 
And if you do that, if you really do that, what will change for you? Just a few verses earlier in our last passage, in chapter 16, Jesus had said that we must deny ourselves and follow him. I know I touched on that last week, but there's so much more that could be said. So please think for a moment again, what does denying yourself mean as you follow Jesus? You could ask, maybe you ask, how should I be serving my family or my church family, even when it's costly? Or it'll mean that you don't get, you don't vent your anger in aggressive words or seething bitterness. Instead of wanting more, more and new possessions and pleasures, instead of wanting more for ourselves, thinking more about how we can give. Or you don't give in. You don't give into that desire to look at another man or woman lustfully. Or as a husband, maybe for you it means you stop controlling and you love your wife for her good. In Matt Papa's book, Look and Live, I've recommended it before, but I find what he says so helpful. His book, Beholding the Soul-Satisfying, Sin-Destroying Glory of Christ. He shares about how he was addicted to sin, a particular sin. And no matter what he did or how hard he tried, he just couldn't change. He couldn't obey Christ. And then a mentor friend said, Matt, I know you've been fighting, but have you been looking? What he meant was, had I really been spending time with Jesus? In the hustle and bustle of life, I hadn't. And so I did. I really did. I began just soaking in the the Bible every morning. I woke up and I looked at Jesus. It didn't happen overnight, but slowly something began happening. I started tasting freedom. I began changing. I met glory. Matt says that's how we change. We experience a greater thrill. Sadly, much Christian teaching today tells us to change by either calling us to do better or try harder. Or the other approach is people say, just believe in yourself. You can do it. Whatever sin we're tempted by, the key is to turn our focus to Jesus. Merely knowing what is true or right won't save us or change us. Because we're not creatures driven by knowledge, but by desire. We'll resist temptation and change when we change what we put in front of our face. In prayer, we need to behold the Son of God and not not just look at him. We need to behold him. We need to gaze deep into the gospel and not merely just pray some prayer and move on. We must take time. Make time. We must linger. Will you linger in looking at Christ and listening to him? Next we see glory veiled. My next two points are a bit shorter. 
Having just witnessed Jesus' glory and heard God's command to listen to him, what does Jesus say next? Verse 7, get up, don't be afraid. I mean, while Jesus deserves to have people fall in fear before his holy divine presence, he calls them to get up and fear not. Such grace. And then he commands them to keep what they've seen secret for now. For only after he's risen will they properly understand who he is. But three times in our passage, Jesus speaks of his death. It was there in verse 9, and in verse 12, and in verse 23, three times. The disciples still wouldn't think the Messiah and Son of God suffering and dying on a cross is glorious. No, they'd more think it's a defeat and weakness and failure. And yet the opposite is true. The disciples, they ask in verse 10 about Elijah coming first. And it seems that they forgot back in chapter 11, Jesus had said that John the Baptist was that second Elijah who was to come. You see, because in Malachi chapter 4, right at the end of the Old Testament, they thought Elijah would come and then the Messiah the Christ would bring the great and dreadful day of the Lord judgment on the world. John is the forerunner of the Messiah Jesus who will bring that judgment. But what they didn't understand is that Jesus was going to come twice. His first coming, God's judgment, falls on Christ to save sinners. And then at his second coming, he'll return in glory and bring that day of the Lord judgment on the world. When his glory will be evident to all. And so at his first coming on the cross, the day of the Lord's, the day of the Lord's judgment, you may say that falls on Christ so that we can be saved from it. And that's good news. That is glorious. But most people don't see it. In 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul's writing to people who are tempted to think that the cross is weak and foolish, not glorious. And he says in chapter 1, 1 Corinthians 1, the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it's the power of God to those of us who are being saved. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, foolishness to Gentiles, non-Jews. And yet Christ is the power of God, the wisdom of God, because Christ's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom. And God's weakness is stronger than human strength. So Jesus' glory, it was veiled in the cross. And yet God's wisdom and strength were displayed in the cross but unbelievers are blind to it. Jesus' glory is displayed in the cross, but unbelievers are blind to it. Blind to the love and grace, the strength and faith in his Father that Jesus showed. There he takes our place. He dies our death for our salvation. Believe it. Believe it. And he deserves the glory for that, doesn't he? 
I mean, that the glorious Son of God would go through that for us. It's humbling. And when we think on that, doesn't it blow us away? Doesn't it move you to want to give him the glory? Doesn't it move and fill your heart with wonder and love and praise so you want to give him the glory that he deserves? You want to listen to him and live for him. Final point is glory in power. The high experience on the mountaintop is now followed by a crushing anticlimax. We move from the mountain of glory to the valley of despair. When Jesus reached the crowd, a man approached and knelt before Jesus. Lord, he said, have mercy on my son because he has seizures and suffers terribly, often falls into the fire, often into the water. I brought him to your disciples, but they could not heal him. Mark chapter 9, the parallel passage explains it was actually the demon that was throwing the boy into the fire and the water. But please don't think that all seizures are caused by demons, no, but these ones are. Centuries earlier, Moses came down a mountain and was met with unbelief. Remember he came down the mountain and Israelites were worshipping the golden calf. Now Jesus comes down a mountain and he's also met with unbelief. You unbelieving and perverse generation, how long will I be with you? How long will I put up with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of him and from that moment the boy was healed. Jesus speaks of the whole Jewish generation when he says they lacked faith and spiritually twisted or depraved. Jesus later explains in verse 20, the disciples couldn't drive out the demon because of their lack of faith. Mark chapter 9 says it's because they needed to pray. The point is similar. The boy's father said that they couldn't heal him. The disciples then asked Jesus, why couldn't we heal him? It seems that they thought they could solve the problem themselves and in their own power. But no, their faith needed to be in Jesus and his power to save and to heal. They needed faith. It was faith that caused young Caleb to look at the promised land centuries earlier, the promised land filled with giants, and it was him who said to Moses, we should go up and take possession of the promised land for we can certainly do it. Job, in the Old Testament, lost all his property, all his children, had his whole body covered with painful sores, and it was faith that enabled him to say, faith in God's care, that enabled him to say in Job 13, though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. was faith in God's protection that enabled Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego to stand on the edge of that fiery furnace and announce to King Nebuchadnezzar, the God we serve is able to save us from it and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not 
serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. We saw back in chapter 15. It was by faith that the Canaanite woman came to Jesus asking for scraps from the master's table, knowing that Jesus could heal her demon-possessed daughter. And it was only it is only by faith that any of us are saved from the fires of hell that are waiting for all humanity. By faith in Christ, the mountain of our sin is rolled away, thrown into the depths of the sea. By faith, we find peace with the glorious God of the universe. The littleness of the disciples' faith was like their faith in the storm on the sea, like Peter's faith, Peter's faith which failed when he started sinking into the sea. It's easy to have faith when everything's going well, everything's under control, when God's already provided. When things continue to be hard, uncertain or threatening, their faith withered. To be honest, I think as does ours. When Jesus first sent the disciples out back in Matthew chapter 10, he gave the disciples authority to cast out demons and heal all sickness. And Mark chapter 6 tells us they drove out many demons. But it seems that the disciples had to learn that the power was not in them. It was in Christ and came from him. He's the one who casts out the demon and heals the boy here in chapter 17. Jesus heal, he, re, he reveals his glory in this display of power. And it's his power that we need to trust in. A mustard seed was one of the smallest known seeds. But it's not so much, Jesus, when he speaks about this, it's not so much the amount of faith that matters. That's his point. It's rather where your faith is located. It's who your faith is in. It, it, faith, this faith that he speaks of, this mustard seed faith, it never gives up believing in the power of Christ to sustain us or change us or our circumstances. Jesus, in, in verse 20, he says this tiny faith can move mountains. Now that's not something Jesus or the apostles literally did, nor has any believer literally moved a mountain that I'm aware of. But it was a proverbial saying among the Jews at the time, a saying that expressed, that expressed accomplishing very great difficulties. So it's a figure of speech, it's a metaphor. As one writer says, Jesus means that God can remove all the difficulties that block your path or enable you to get through them. God is powerful to do impossible things. And where to, where to place our faith in the God who can, in the Lord Jesus who can. Jesus here is he's not promising that if you just believe something enough, then he will give it to you. God will do it like some people claim. As John Kelvin says, 
Jesus here does not mean that God will give us whatever comes heedlessly to our minds or mouths. In fact, since there is nothing more contradictory to faith than the foolish and unconsidered wishes of our flesh, it follows that where faith reigns, there's no asking for things indiscriminately. I might add, or selfishly. We might say that some people misunderstand the will of God and try to move a mountain that God does not want moved. Jesus is saying infinite resources are available to the believer and trusting in the Lord can result in great things. I don't know what seemingly impossible thing you're praying for at the moment. But maybe it's for family or friends that you care about to come to Christ and be saved. George Muller, in the 1800s, he founded schools and orphanages. He was passionate about sharing the good news of Jesus. At one point, he began to pray for five friends to be saved. He had to wait five years for one of them to be saved. After five more years, two more became Christians. And then after 25 years, the fourth was saved. He prayed for his fifth friend until he died. That man came to Christ a few months after Muller's death. He prayed for more than 50 years. Faith perseveres in prayer and looks to the God who can do the impossible. We will find the strength to keep trusting Christ and trusting God when we're captivated by the glory of Jesus. Christianity is the hard and yet joyful journey of beholding Jesus by faith. And when we're captured by his glory, we'll be moved to listen to him truly and trust him deeply. Let's pray now that we will. Father in heaven, we give you thanks for the revelation of the divine nature of Christ in this transfiguration. Peter, James and John got to see it with their own eyes and testify to it. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you might help us to believe this testimony, eyewitness testimony that's written down for us, and that by faith we too might be able to behold, be blown away and humbled by the glory of Jesus. Please change our hearts by your spirit so that we might want to listen to him and trust him, not give up praying to him, that you might help us to do all that he says for your glory and praise, for our good, for the salvation of others. Amen.